Laura, thank you very much. It's uh, wonderful to be here. And it's my pleasure to speak today with my friend Howard Wilson, the Chief Financial Officer of PagerDuty. I am an angel investor in PagerDuty, very happy investor, and Bessemer Venture Partners, where I work, is has been a longtime investor as well. Uh, and Howard has just a terrific background. Uh, as you'll hear from his accent, he grew up in Johannesburg, South Africa, also spent time in Australia, New Zealand, so between, and now lives in the United States. So between those four countries, we can try to figure out which words are, are from which country. Uh, I want to start, Howard, with talking about uh, 2008, very dramatic time, the financial crisis. You were living in Australia at that point, working for a software company whose customers were mining companies, uh, Mincom. Tell us how you got there, what you were doing there, and what the financial crisis meant for you. Yeah, well, well, thanks, uh, Jeff. This was really one of those cases that I would, would say was not good timing in terms of changing roles. So I was in a um, in a, what you could say a reasonably you know reliable secure environment working for Oracle, and um, took a role at Mincom, which actually focused on providing software to asset intensive industries, um, particularly mining. And this was really just the start of the what was seen as being you know the global financial crisis, which led to the Great Recession. But it was early days, and then September two thousand and eight, the Lehman Brothers collapse happened, and that was followed by a commodities crisis. And so here I am joining a company with a whole lot of expectations around modernizing the small software company. I was in a business operations role about to try and help drive some of that transformation. And all of a sudden our concern was more about how do we keep this company going since our customers were under such duress because of, of what was happening in, in the market. And how do we actually still manage to attract talent and effectively, how do we get customers to renew their contracts and to pay their bills so that we could pay our people? So it was a very different um, set of circumstances that, that I ended up in from where, where I started. But it did have a successful outcome. We managed to weather that storm, um, took good care of our customers, built a reliable customer base, and eventually um, modernize our platform, modernize our operations, and the, we sold the company to, to ABB. What were the key decisions that helped you win? And what uh, what were some of the decisions you'd like to have back in that crisis? Yeah, so I think, you know, the decisions that, that we made were, were decisions that actually served us well later on down the track too. And I think the first was our CEO at the time uh, really got us to think about people and thinking about who were the, you know, how could we make sure we did the right thing by our employees in this time? And also, how did we make sure we did the right thing by our customers? We had supportive private equity investors um, who helped us then go through a capital raising activity because we needed to make sure we could fund the business on an ongoing basis. But I think, you know, the first decision was really to to think about how did we how did we provide stability for our employee base? And I think that was a was um, a really good decision. Um, I do think that in hindsight, it's always easy to look back at some of the minor decisions that we took and think about, oh, that was a bit reactive. We could have taken a bit longer. But at the time, you, you know, you were making decisions around, like, how do I manage expense? So, you know, contracts that we could terminate early, we terminated. And then six months later, we had to go back and like, well, actually, no, we do need this, this, this contract. So those are some of the things which it's in the heat of that kind of moment where it is a crisis, you are having to think about things um, you know, within that context. How deeply did you have to cut your team? 
So we actually managed to keep our team um, pretty much intact. We, we did end up having to go through a small set of minor layoffs, like 5% of, of, of employees, um, but nothing major. Whereas we saw a number of our peers were having to do like 10, 15 and 20% cuts. And did you ever get down to uh, not having much cash in your bank account or how close did you get? Well, it, it got a little bit close at times. And that's why, you know, we had to actually, um, we, we managed, for example, our renewal base very closely because we needed to make sure that we were getting the renewals in and that we were able to make sure that we were, were getting a sustainable um, inflow of cash. And, and that was a very different world from like being at Oracle where I never had to worry about that. Um, particularly in my role, I wasn't kind of managing any of the, the finances to where I had a great partnership. I wasn't the CFO at the time, but I was heading up business operations and worked very closely with the CFO. And we were kind of putting our heads together every week around what had to happen that week. It was as, as um, detailed as that, as opposed to like, oh, well, this will be fine at the end of the month. But that was a few months, um, which became like a multi-year journey. And we, we got through that, you know, over a, in, in a few months. Well, 2008 was a very scary time. I was the CFO of Oracle then. We had $10 billion in cash, but we had some commercial paper and we could not roll over our commercial paper, right. even though we had 10 billion cash. That's how frightened the banks were and how, uh, how scared they were. So even companies with incredible credit like us were had yeah. to, had to uh, be nimble. So let's go back to the beginning. You grew up in South Africa during the apartheid era, right? Yeah, that's right. Uh, yeah. What, what was that like? And I, yeah, I it was about the, your path to uh, becoming a CFO. Yeah, it, it was interesting because I suppose, you know, South Africa was a very isolated society. So, you know, you ended up with a, a very narrow view on the world to some extent because the influences were, were narrow. Um, the one thing though that I think was defining for me is my mother was an activist in her own right who felt very strongly about human rights. And so as a family, we always felt that we we had a role to play in terms of, of one, uh, taking a very strong stand on social justice issues, but also taking a stand against what the government was doing at the time. And, and that sort of created an environment that made me very aware of, of man's inhumanity to man. Um, but it also made me feel as I wanted to look outside of the country, like what was, what was normal in another country. Um, and the other thing was that, that very early on, I realized I was a problem solver. And part of what I really enjoyed doing both from my school years and when I started working was solving problems. And, and that sort of led me to becoming this person who, who's lived in multiple countries around the world because I've just looked for opportunity and where the opportunity is, I've gone. And um, that's framed a little bit of, of my career path. So you, then uh, you went to school there and tell us how you, how you started out in, uh, in business. Yes, I started out as a software engineer. So my first sort of role was actually working as, um, you know, what was called the software developer back then, um, working for a company that was in the early days of building packaged applications. And um, that was a, um, you know, really good intro into understanding both how technology functioned and how it worked in business. And in fact, the first set of business applications I built were really within the accounts receivables area and billing area. And so that gave me some insights from a finance perspective around business process. And from there, I, I moved into a number of roles from both being an engineer to then being a consultant to managing projects to managing a consulting practice. Um, and my career has taken a number of paths in terms of both then 
you know, being a salesperson for a while and managing um, a, um, uh, a technical services business and then a number of, of operations roles. Um, I've been a COO and finally a CFO today. So what was your first CFO role? How, how old were you and how did you get to be a CFO? Yeah, so my, CF, my CFO role came late, right? So I was, um, became a CFO for the first time at PagerDuty. I'd sort of done it on an interim basis previously, but this was the first time sitting in the seat full-time um, as CFO. Before this at PagerDuty, I'd been the chief commercial officer, which was really more like a COO role. So in my career, I'd had a COO role a couple of times where I'd had finance reporting to me, but I hadn't been full-time in the CFO role. And this is the first time as the CFO of a public company. So I was kind of in my 50s when I became the CFO. So what was that conversation like with, uh, with the company when they were recruiting you? And they were saying, we want to have an experienced CFO. And you said, well, I've actually never done this before. Yeah, so, so I had a little slightly different trajectory because PagerDuty already knew me. And it was, um, it was interesting from the perspective of I had um, already been uh, operating as the chief commercial officer. I inherited the finance team, which was really a very small team, less than 10 people, um, and was actually growing that team. And the, the company had started um, a search for a CFO. And, and then our CEO, Jennifer Tejada, um, approached me and some of the board members spoke to me and said like, well, you know, um, would you contemplate um, taking on a role like this? And I thought, well, I have a lot of operational experience, but I don't know finance, like, can I do this? And um, they expressed a lot of confidence in me. And I sat back and thought about, well, what would need to be true for me to be able to take on this role? And I realized that I needed to make sure that I had a team that could make up for the gaps that I couldn't cover myself. And that I could have, have a team that could, could um, ensure that we were meeting all our obligations. And so I sort of reframed that and thought, this is just another opportunity in my career where I can do something. I have a lot of the skills that are required, but I do have gaps, right? So how do I fill the gaps? And so I then came up with a plan, which I discussed with the CEO and um, said, yeah, I'm, I'm happy to take this on, but this is what I need. And um, it's worked out well. It's been, I'm so pleased that I've had this opportunity and I enjoy being a CFO immensely. It's given me a lot of um, pleasure to be able to have this different view uh, on the world. How many employees did PagerDuty have when you joined and how many were on the finance team? Yeah, so when I joined, we had less than 200 employees and um, we had, probably when I joined, we had about half a dozen people in finance. When I inherited the finance team, I think we had about 10 maybe 12 with a couple of contractors. Um, and obviously now I have a team that, that has expanded to include um, our IT team and um, you know, all the other functions that you would have with the strategy and all the functions you'd have as a public company. So and how many employees does PagerDuty have today and how many on your expanded team? Yeah, so today we're hovering around a thousand employees and my team now across my expanded team is kind of heading up to close to 100. So you talked about your the gaps and you wanted to make sure you had strong people to fill those gaps. What, what were those gaps when you first started? And then how have those teams developed to go from essentially 10 to 100 people? Sure. Is quite a bit of growth in your organization. Yeah, so I would say that, you know, the first area that I looked at was thinking about how do we meet our our obligations when we become a public company? So I had was already leading our process 
to take us um, to get ready to be a public company and then the IPO process itself. So those were two distinct um, activities for us. And so I wanted to make sure that I had the right team in place that could make sure that we could meet our public company um, requirements in terms of SEC reporting and accounting and audit and so forth. So um, I have a very strong controller who's kind of, you know, anchor of the team. And I was involved in that process. Um, she'd actually had joined us before I stepped into, into the role full time, um, but was involved in recruiting her. And she's been like a very strong resource for us in terms of ensuring that those things are in place. Um, on the FPNA side, I already had a, um, a lot of, that was an area where I already had some strength because I'd been doing FPNA type activity on a de facto basis anyway, but also a strong leader in, in that slot. And then filled in the other roles that we needed around SEC reporting, tax and treasury and so forth. Um, but, but I mapped out what it was that we needed and, and made sure that we filled those gaps. So even though you never had the title of CFO before, you had responsibility for planning and budgeting and FP&A and other companies? That, that is correct. And I'd, I'd led the, the planning cycle at you know, multiple companies over. So that experience was super helpful. Right. Now, one of those companies was Keynote. Is that right? That is correct. Yeah. So tell us, tell us a little bit about what, what did Keynote do? What was your role there? And, and how did sure. that play out? Yes. So Keynote was uh, a company that provided, was in the application performance monitoring space. So it provided synthetic and real user monitoring. Um, my role at Keynote was COO. It was a company that had been public. Um, it had been taken private. Um, I had been brought in to help drive some of the transformation to a sustainable growth model um, for, um, for, for Keynote. Um, I had a fairly broad portfolio uh, in that company too, which covered a variety of things. Um, and partnered very closely with the finance team uh, around building out our long-term model and also uh, doing some of our regular cycles of business planning and operations. So my operations bent always comes into play in terms of how do we, we, we do things. So that, that was an interesting um, uh, role for me um, in, in terms of from a company perspective. And it was interesting too from the, the, the perspective of we started out with a particular mission around um, accelerating the growth of that company, making it more profitable. And we ended up then being acquired and merged into another company, into Dynatrace, which led to me taking a slightly different path because I then stepped into a general manager role um, uh, within the Dynatrace business for a little over a year. And we, what, what was that merger? I guess it was both the merger negotiation and then the merger integration. That, um, that is correct. So how, what were the lessons learned there? Yeah, so I think, you know, this, this is where, again, you know, no one can actually control the future. So you can't see around all the corners and know exactly what's going to happen. And, and we were on a path and doing well. We'd kind of been in that, um, on a, a good trajectory for a couple of years at that point in time when the merger um, happened. So effectively the parent of, 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 of um, Keynote acquired Dynatrace and decided to put the two companies together. And in that process, um, it was, it was, it, it made so much sense because it just made the Dynatrace as an application performance monitoring company have a broader footprint and broader portfolio. And so, you know, for me, the key thing was really around initially making sure that the business drivers around doing this really was sensible. But then in the integration, it was how do you do that without losing value? 
how do you make sure that you do this in a way that was efficient and effective? So I helped drive the integration of the um, of the two companies, um, and then ultimately into leading that business unit. Were were the uh, the benefits mostly cost savings or revenue synergies or both? It was both. There were benefits definitely um, from a, a revenue perspective because it expanded the customer base um, within that space. Uh, so there was definitely you know good melding of two different customer bases into a single customer base uh, because Dynatrace had a competing product. So we added the two together and it became a stronger base. And then obviously we looked at ways in which we could reduce the cost of delivery and how we could ensure that we were also looking at efficiencies in terms of the sales delivery model, because we now had access to a much bigger team to sell the product through the Dynatrace sales team. Uh, and so that created uh, efficiencies for us there. And then there was some consolidation of, you know, from a GNA perspective as well. There's a lot of research that, sh that show that most mergers and acquisitions fail, don't meet their goals, but it sounds like this was successful. If you think back on what was the key uh, reason this was successful for the, for the owners of both companies, what would, what would that be? I, I think the reason that it was successful was that the orientation around this merger started with the customer. It started around how did we actually ensure that, that we were not going to um, compromise the customer through this activity. So there was a very high value um, placed both by the CEO of Dynatrace and myself as leading that business unit at that point in time around how do we make sure that we you know, build customer trust. And, and so whilst there was some consolidation of the platform, we made sure that like no customer was left behind in that process. And I think that's what, what meant that we were able to effectively merge two platforms together, retain you know, almost all of that customer base. And then over time, Dynatrace came up with a with an even new improved offering. And those customers, this was post me being there, were merged into, into that new platform. So there was very careful planning around product migration so that it was not, you know, no one was left out on a limb. And did you keep both products for a long period of time or did you sunset one of the products? It was essentially what happened is that both products were kept running for a period of time and the target was the new platform. So both of them ultimately ended up on the new platform. I see. So if I, whether I started on Keynote or started on Dynatrace, at some point I would move off both of those onto the new one. And then, then there was only one. How long did it take from the time of the merge, closing the merger to the time when all your customers were on the new platform? So, so that, that, the, the completion of that happened post my leaving Dynatrace um, and then, and I've since then joined PagerDuty, but we had made good headway in stabilizing both those bases on the two synthetic monitoring platforms and then um, had started that progression of moving customers onto the, the, new, um, the new platform. And that was progressing well, you know, 18 months post the, um, post the, the, the merger and, and continue to do so after I'd left. That's great. Yeah. You've had a pretty unusual career path to being CFO, as you said, yeah. becoming, getting your first CFO role in, in your 50s. Uh, if you could go back and if, if you were talking to your, your young self when you were a software engineer and giving yourself career advice, did it all work out re really well? Or are there some things you wish you knew then that you, don't, that you, you wish you knew then that you didn't know at the time? Yeah, well, I, I guess I would never have imagined that I would end up a public company CFO. I probably at that stage would have thought I'm going to end up being some sort of, you know, R&D leader. Um, but I, I think 
you know, the piece that I would always, the one thing I've come to realize as I've made progress is that it's really important to be intentional about building out your network. And um, I've built out a good network, but it's almost been serendipitous a lot of the time through the work that I've done and the connections that I've made. But there's so much value in terms of, of at least setting a path or a set of paths that you'd like to follow um, from a career perspective, and then building connections within those people who you can get to know and speak to can inform you because it's so easy to always retain your own worldview. But I've, I've found that the more that you can get input from a broader audience, the more it helps inform your thinking. So I would say I'd be a lot more intentional around building networks. And I would also probably, I, I would probably be more open-minded about a career in finance than I was back then. Cause I thought, oh, this is something that's, that, you know, is not, not for me, I'm an engineer. How could I ever have a role in finance? But probably start off with a, with a creative proclivity to take something on within that space. When you're talking about these relationships that have been important to you, were they mostly with people older than you or people about your age and, and the same place in your career? And how did you, it sounds like it was very valuable for you. How, why was it valuable for them? Yeah, I'd say it's been a mix of people um, who I've, you know, I've been, I've had some great sponsors who typically have been people who I've worked for in my career, who, who have either on the base of the work that I've done or a problem that they think I have the potential to solve have um, pointed me in that direction. That's built a good network. But I've also had you know, people who have worked for me or who've worked with me on teams who um, it's been a symbiotic relationship where we, we, we rely on one another. So I, I've had ongoing relationships over 20 years with some folks who you know, at some stage they've worked for me, at some stage I've worked for them. And from an age perspective, they've both been younger and older. Uh, and I think the benefit has always come that I, I, I've always felt a strong sense of responsibility to, you know, to reciprocate for the assistance that I've received from other sponsors, mentors, coaches, um, to other people. So I make myself available to other folks to be able to um, provide them with my view, my perspective. Doesn't mean that I always have the answer, but I'm always willing to offer some sort of opinion or some thoughts for for folks on on how to think about a a situation or a problem and and that certainly has been rewarding for me because i i regularly you know interact with those folks um you know every every year i kind of reach out to a few of the folks who were i worked with 10 years ago or you know even longer and we we maintain some connection howard what would an example be of a time where someone helped you and a time where you helped someone else sure so time you know i think about um when pay, when i took on the cfo role um at pager duty um, this was going to be new ground for me and becoming a public company CFO was something that I hadn't contemplated. And this was like overwhelming for me in terms of the response I got from the CFO community. So I decided like, I don't really know this space particularly well. I'm going to ask a few people. And so I got a few introductions, but I reached out to some of your previous guests, people like Elena Gomez and Bill Loesch and, um, uh, you know, uh, and uh, Kazema Chandler. Um, and a whole whole raft, Jenny Saran, like a whole group of different CFOs. And every single one of them responded to my request. They all said, yes, we are willing. And they answered questions either about the IPO process or how I should think about setting targets in, in this world. And, and that was super helpful 
to me. Like they, these, these have become friends of mine, people who I, I know I can rely on for you know, answering a question. Sometimes it's just a quick question, like how should I think about this? And I get a response. Um, and I've done the same now. So I've now helped multiple CFOs who've been going through the, the, the becoming a public company process, uh, the IPO process, and have helped them both in preparation and in, um, in as they're getting into the actual cycle, whether it's advice about bankers. And so I think that's been, been an example. That's terrific. Let's uh, bring it up to the present uh, now at PagerDuty. What's your top priority now for the coming year? Yeah, so PageDuty is a company that has, you know, has strong growth above 30% and we're continuing to scale. And I think for me, the, the biggest area of focus for me is how do we continue to sustain and accelerate that growth, but also how do we then scale at the same time? Because, you know, what you need when you're, you know, a 200 person company uh, at 100 million of ARR is very different from what you're going to need at a billion, billion dollars of ARR and, you know, a thousands of employees. And so, um, you know, a lot of my time right now has been thinking about how do we ensure that we have a, a good operational model to support our long-term vision. And, and that for me is a, is a key area of focus. How do we bring that our strategy to life? So I own our corporate strategy um, team as well and the development that we're doing there. And so I want to ensure that we are not treating strategy as being something that's um, adjacent to the business, but it is part of what we do as a business. And tell people a little bit about PagerDuty. I guess many of the people on this call are customers of PagerDuty and many others should be customers of PagerDuty. So yes. why don't you just give the one minute ad for what, what PagerDuty Sure. So, so PagerDuty um, has, offers a digital operations management platform. And basically what that means is in this environment that we live in today, where so much happens online, that happens within the digital environment, people need to ensure, or customers need to ensure that they can deliver a really good positive experience to their end customers. So think about if you were a travel site or if you were had a, a mobile app, you're wanting to make sure that your customer has a good experience and can trust um, that experience. So what PageDuty does is that we help companies manage their internal operations, their digital operations, so that they can be responsive when an issue arises, or in fact, take the signals that are coming in from the environment that tell them that a problem is developing so that they can be proactive, so that they can get the right person on the right problem in the right time, so that they can resolve issues before anybody even realized there's a problem. Terrific. Uh, we're going to open up questions for from the audience soon. So if you have questions for Howard, uh, just put it in chat and I'll be reading them while I'm talking to him and we're continuing the conversation. Uh, let's talk about building a team. Uh, when you grew from 10 people to over 100 people, I guess part of that was expanding control beyond finance to IT and things like that. But how did you think about building the team and, and how did you train them? How did you get them the kind of experience you need, that they needed to have? Yes, I, I think, you know, I've been through building teams across multiple organizations, but this was the first time I was building out a team in finance. And um, I, I spent a fair amount of time as we were thinking about this, getting advice from some mentors around like, oh, well, what are some of the alternate structures? Because sometimes there can be a very predefined view of like, 
you need accounting, you need FPNA, you need tax and treasury, you need IR, you like create all these very specific divisions. And I, I spent a little bit of time thinking about, well, okay, how do I build uh, the, the right structure that is going to be able to at least sustain us for a few years? And then when, it, when I started thinking about the people that I wanted to hire, I've preferenced, if you like, um, folks who were, were going to, who were excited about the, the growth and excited about the expansion opportunity. And that might sound strange, but what I found that as we started interviewing for some roles, some people like the stability of the environment that is not going to change much, right? Whereas some people actually love the fact that, yes, this does mean that I'm going to do this a certain way, but I'm going to have to look for a way to improve it, whether I'm working in collections or whether I'm working in, in accounting or whether I'm working in order management, all of those functions. So the first thing for me was really to think about ensuring that we're getting good um, motivational fit in terms of, of the team. Uh, and obviously you always have to look for requisite skills, right? You need the domain knowledge, but then also the, the requisite skills. So that's played a lot into the recruiting. We also place a very high value um, as a company and I do personally on inclusion and diversity. So that becomes a key um, area of focus that whenever I'm looking at building out a team, I want to ensure that I'm starting with a diverse slate, that we've actually gone to the trouble of, of making sure that we have um, good representation in the both the people who are doing the interviewing and the interviewees so that we can support our, our diversity and inclusion goals. And then ensuring too that we are getting a rounded out um, perspective on, on folks. So ensuring that we're building out panels that, are, that give us the right kind of a 360 view on, um, on, on folks that we bring into the business. And that's been an important from getting people into the team. And then the second piece is placing a very high value on development. Right? I think we have a responsibility to build the next generation of leaders in tech. And so with my team, I'm, I'm a little bit maniacal about making sure that everybody has their own personal development plan so that I can ensure that they know where they want to go from a career perspective and that we can be supportive of that. And this isn't always about providing training, but it's about providing experiences and opportunity and um, things like doing job swaps, which people say to me, you want to do job swaps in finance? That might seem like a bit of a risky, crazy thing to do. But we've done a few of those where we've had people you know, swap from doing one role into doing another role. And then they have the security of knowing that the other person is right there that they can rely on, but they start developing a new set of skills. So those are some of the things that, that, that we've done. What's an example of someone moving from one role to another role? What role do they go from and to? Yeah, so we've done this in, in terms of we've had someone from, and this isn't a big leap, but we've had someone who's been very specialized on SEC reporting and someone who's focused on accounting, um, accounting closed processes who wanted to develop the, the skills uh, in the different areas. So we said, okay, fine, let's, let's change this up so that you can actually develop some of the operational closed skills and you can develop some of the, the technical accounting SEC reporting skills. So those are the kinds of things that we've done. We've done others on the transactional side too, in terms of where people have been doing um, some of the, the processes around either order management, order booking, and then some of the ongoing billing and collections just to broaden people's view of the whole process. Um, those are just a few. So it sounds like the first example is two people with accounting training Mm -hmm. different in different specific areas changing both within accounting and the yes. second example was two different with process improvement or process management 
uh, skills, changing processes, but staying within process management. Is that fair to that say? That is correct. Yep. Yeah. And, and when we have a question here from Laura uh, about CFOs who have no accounting training, uh, I, I'm not an accountant. It sounds like you're not an accountant. Sure. What, do you, what do you think about, I guess we're both CFOs, so it works out pretty well, but what are your thoughts about CFOs uh, who don't have accounting backgrounds? So, you know, I, I think that, you know, you can become a CFO today with any background. You could be from accounting, you could come from a banking background, FPNA, or from a business background. I think there's so many different paths to becoming a CFO today. I think you, if you are a CFO who doesn't have an accounting background, I mean, you need to know the basics. And I mean, I have done a fair amount of reading and study on this topic. And through my general business experience, I've worked very closely with um, accounting over the years anyway. Um, just because it's the, the, I think it's important for any business leader to have some level of understanding. But I think that's why it's important then to ensure that you do have someone who you can rely on who's an expert, right? Because as a CFO, you can't be an expert on everything. No CFO can know everything about accounting, about tax, about treasury, about, you know, banking, IR. It's, it's, it's just too much. The domain is too large. So how do you ensure that you have the, the experts in place? So when you recruited a controller, a strong controller, and you're not a controller, you've never done it yourself, how, how do you know what questions to ask? How can you tell a great controller from someone who's not that great? Yeah, you, you make sure that you formulate the questions with assistance from experts, and you make sure that the panel has folks who do know. So you can actually, you know, in, in our case, we ensure that the, the, the folks that are involved in the interview process were, were experts. I think if you have the advantage of a, um, a, you know, establishing a board committee with an expert already from an accounting or audit perspective, you involve them in that process so that they can, can, um, can, you know, test some of that for you. So you would actually have a board member interview the controller candidates? Yeah, yeah. If, if you, I mean, I haven't had to do that here, but I would certainly say if you were in that situation and you didn't um, have the expertise readily available from elsewhere, um, then that would certainly be what I would, would recommend or do. And when you think about, uh, this is a question from Laura, when, when you think about the, the controllers that you've worked with over the years, what, what are the characteristics of uh, the, the best controllers compared to the ones who weren't quite as good? I, I think the, the ones that I've found to be the most effective, I don't think I've actually worked with one that I would say was not so good. I think they've all been, been, been good. The ones that I've actually been found, found the most effective have got a very strong orientation towards the understanding what the business does. So if I think about, um, sometimes you can end up with a little bit of a um, uh, standoffish relationship between maybe kind of the controller team, particularly if that controller team has kind of got the order management processes and the sales team for example. But I found when you get a controller who wants to really understand that process from what it looks like for the customer and for the salesperson, and then gets themselves inserted into that, then the levels of empathy that develop are really powerful. And I think that then makes a controller who has a lot of credibility, who has a lot of ability to, to, to influence. And, and those, are the, those are the controllers who, for me, have always stood out. Uh, we have a question from Tim about your personal transition. You started out as a software engineer and then you went into finance. Uh, it sounds like you didn't get an MBA. And would you, would you, if you could do it again, would you get an MBA? Do you think it's helpful to have an MBA? I, I, I would 
would love to have, have kind of done that on the way. And I think, you know, I, my original qualification was information systems and psychology and, and then the school of life. <laughs> and, and I think in some ways, um, if, you know, I, if I think back, if I knew where I was going to end up today, I probably would have gone down the MBA track because there's certainly immense amount of value in terms of getting that more holistic, broad, you know, business view as opposed to learning it as you go. We have a question from Quentin about uh, about the liquidity in a crisis, and maybe this goes back to your your days in Australia in two thousand eight. Uh, ha have you how 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 important were the liquidity issues? Uh, you know, credit uh, credit your customers going bankrupt or not being able to pay you, uh, giving them more time to pay or discounts. Uh, how do you handle collections, and did you have any key tools? software and and, and uh, sort of uh, non-software non tools to help with that? Yeah, so, you know, I, I think back then in terms from software tools, we didn't really have anything particularly dramatic in terms of apart from regular um, ERP solutions to help us with the, the management of that. But I think it was more about our approach. So, you know, we were able to to engage with our customers. We were talking about hundreds of customers, not thousands. So obviously it was a manageable base. Um, we interacted with, you know, we started with our largest customers and figured out really what were the commitments that they could make and what were the commitments that they couldn't make. And we basically sort of tallied up like, okay, what could we be sure of here? Where would we need to make some agreements around payment terms or extending credit? Um, what could we actually cover? So it ended up being a fairly detailed exercise across a few hundred customers. Obviously, you 80-20 rule, you kind of look at the ones that are the biggest. And that was able to help us get a, you know, a good sense of the stability of matching the inflows and the outflows um, that, that we required. Did you go to your vendors and say, oh, we're just not going to pay you, we can't afford it? Yeah, and we also had, we had discussions with our vendors as well to see if we could extend um, payment terms with some of our vendors. That was what I referenced to as well. We looked at some contracts that we, we felt were not critical and in fact canceled some contracts with vendors that we, we could because we felt that it was going to be within our interest to, to do so. So that was uh, uh, some of the things that we did, did there. And as I say, some of those we probably react a little bit too quickly on because we then had to go back, you know, six months down the track, but didn't do us any harm. And you know, for me, transparency is important. So when we were involved in those discussions, we were very open, right? Like our view was like, this is where we're at, this is what we're needing to do, and this is why. And, and I think that then you develop a dialogue, right? We have to think it always starts with people. Right? So you're connecting with people, speak to the people. So that, you know, the fact that the company is involved is, um, it's separate, it's, it's, but you're connecting with another human and to have the discussion around what the issue is, what you're solving for. And it's amazing how much good can come out of that. What a concept, finance people are actually human. So Laura, <laughs> back to you, back yeah, to you for, 
Yeah, no, just really quick. I'm just interrupting. Um, there's great questions. Keep them coming in. Um, but just quick little elevator pitch for Airbase. If you don't know us, we are a spend management platform. So that means we bring your corporate card program, bill payments, expense reimbursements all onto one platform. It makes it uh, much more transparent, a lot more control um, for your finance team. Uh, and you know, as of someone who uses it myself, now I have I'm an events person. Now I have to ask for permission. I can't, I just don't have a card anymore. So it's much easier to track. So um, if you are interested, I'm going to launch a poll right here. Uh, if you'd like to learn more, great. If not, that's totally fine. Uh, but yeah, keep on, keep the great questions coming for Howard. Back to you, Jeff. Thank you, Laura. We have a question from Ajay. Uh, uh, PagerDuty is, is a cloud SaaS uh, product. Uh, was uh, was the, the mining software company also SaaS or was it on-premise? Oh, that was on-premise. That was typical okay. perpetual um, license with software, you know, maintenance and renewal kind of. And, and Keynote was also on-premise? Uh, Keynote was uh, was actually, was cloud, cloud-based, but okay. not fully SaaS, right? So we had, a, had our own um, uh, data center locations and co-host locations. It was a subscription model, um, which gave us a fair amount of continuity. And we had some elements that had an on-prem component. Yeah. So if you spent basically your whole career in software, in B2B yes, software, but correct. you've gone back and forth between on-premise and subscription and cloud and SaaS, yep. uh, what do you think are the, the key differences for the, a CFO or a finance leader in specifically in, in SaaS finance as opposed to the other kinds of software? Yeah. What I, what I love about um, SaaS and subscription is the certainty and reliability. So um, I used to get heartburn in the days of, of perpetual software where your, your, your quarter was really dependent on what you actually sold in that quarter in terms of, of license, particularly if you're a company where your, your maintenance revenues have not overtaken significantly your new license revenues. And so I think that as a, as a CFO, definitely the subscription models of, of SaaS are really great because they help with planning. They help you understand um, kind of, you know, what you can spend. Um, the visibility is just so, so helpful. Terrific. We have a question from an anonymous person who I assume is a controller who would like to be a CFO and is asking you for advice. How do I get to be a CFO? Should I just wait my turn? Should I be aggressive and ask for the order? Uh, how subtle or not so subtle should I be to advocate for myself? Yeah, so I, I would say if you want to be a CFO, you've got to make it known. Like I think it doesn't help to to hide that that's your 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 goal and your intent. the The second thing for me is I think that if you are a controller who wants to be a CFO, make it your job to get to know the business really well, because I've said the, the controllers that I've seen that have made the progress to becoming a CFO are those that have taken the time to not just focus on the accounting and the transactional processing and the mechanics of finance, but understanding the business. And I think, so, you know, join a sales call or go and sit with an engineer, say, I'd like to follow, you know, do a day in the life of with an engineer. Like, how do you actually write code if you're a software company or um, join a consultant? Do, do those activities that will give you the in-depth view so that when when you have the discussion uh, with, with someone, they can see that you're doing this with knowledge because ultimately the CFO needs to be a really strong partner with the CEO. The, 
the CEO is looking for somebody who understands the business, not just someone who understands the finances, somebody who actually understands the business and can speak about the, the business authoritatively. So make it known and try and shadow all the different parts of the business so that you can do that with confidence. When I was the CFO of Oracle, I spent about 10% of my time as an executive sponsor, as did many other executives around the company. And so the sales team would say, for instance, we're going to call on Fidelity's CFO next month in Boston. And it would be great to have the Oracle CFO come out to Boston, meet with the, with the Fidelity CFO to talk about how we use Oracle software at Oracle. Uh, and so that was an important part of my role. It gave me great exposure and learning about Oracle's products and customers as well. Sounds like you encourage that. What, what's... If you're the controller, though, and you're not the CFO, and, you, and, and the controller approaches a sales leader and says, I'd love to go on sales calls, do you think the sales people would be open to that? And how, how, can you, how can the controller persuade the sales leader to say, this is a good idea? I, I think particularly in this world where most of the selling is happening virtually, I think that it makes it easier, right? So it's not as though you're having to actually go out with someone and show up in a room physically. But when you're doing this via Zoom or video conferencing, it's really quite easy. And I've actually had other members of my team do this um, who've actually said to the sales team, hey, I just really want to understand the sales process, our order management team, some of them have done this. And, and the sales team is more than happy. And they, all that they've approached the salesperson saying, look, I want to understand um, exactly what a sales call looks like and what happens and how you deal with the customer and what kind of questions they ask. And so that I can build empathy for the process that you're going through and also build my understanding of the business. And I've never had a salesperson say no to any of my team that have asked that. And then it's very easy. The salesperson has an introduction. They say, oh, by the way, I have so-and-so who's joining me on this call today. They're just doing this as part of like work experience to understand a little bit about kind of how we interact with our customers. And, and it's it's always a positive, positive impact. And the and often people on my team have come away from that saying like, oh, wow, that was really interesting. Like, I didn't realize selling was so hard or um, the customer asked some really interesting questions or, um, you know, why didn't you just offer them a price there and then in that call? You know, why did you sort of say, well, I'll get back to you because I know you've already got an approved quote. Like what's, what's going on? So I, I've seen some interesting discussions come out of that. Okay. Why doesn't the salesperson give the price? You got me. <laughs> <laughs> well, sometimes it's, a, it's it's kind of a case of they wanting to make sure that before they 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 go in with the price that they will be careful with discounting. So who knows? Oracle has a playbook, and uh, the, the way the salespeople told me about it is uh, there are two things the customer wants. It's because the, if the customer is in a sales cycle, they're probably talking to Oracle, let's say an SAP, if they're doing financials, uh, and they they are required to get a quote from Oracle. And they're required to get a demo from Oracle, even if they're leaning to SAP. Right. So if you just give them the demo and give them the price, then they yeah. check the box and they don't care about you anymore. And then they go off and they buy SAP. Yeah. So the, the salespeople are trained to say, don't give it to them yet. First, you have to ask 100 questions about their needs and their problems so you can custom tailor your sales pitch and actually keep the price and the demo in reserve because yeah. the customer needs to continue to engage with you until you've given them that information that they are required to get. So it's actually an incredibly powerful tool to not give a price and not give, uh, give a demo if in fact the customer is committed to buying this category of product and you're one of the leading products in that category. So they have to, they have to engage with you and, and you yeah. can 
you really can get, learn a lot of information that way. That, that makes sense, Jeff. I think the other piece that our team focuses on is that they want to make sure that they're solving a problem before they, um, they get to the price. And they also want to make sure that they can demonstrate the value because we feel really strongly about wanting to make sure that if customers are buying our products, that it is going to solve their problem. Like they don't buy something that doesn't work for them. So kind of the price discussion tends to be left to the, the end because you want to try and make sure you've, the value is clear. And that, you know, it lines up with what you're saying too. So Ajay is asking if he were to shadow you for a week and just follow you around, what would you do all day? What's, what's your typical week like? <laughs> um, I probably spend too much time in meetings, which I'm actually trying to work, work on reducing. Um, Who so, are the meetings I mean, with? Sorry? Who are the meeting with your CEO, meeting with your team, yeah, so, ones? Yeah, so I have, it, it's a combination. So in depending on the quarter, like I end up with a set of time that gets um, around earnings where I end up with a lot of external calls with um, both coverage analysts and investors. And if we have any marketing activities for the company in terms of investor marketing, those normally take, take, um, take up a fair amount of time in the, uh, the, the month following earnings. So that's kind of an area where that, that's often the flavor or the complexion um, of, of those meetings. Um, the rest of that, I also am an executive sponsor in a number of our, our accounts. So I end up with um, a regular flavor of customer calls that happen over the course of a month uh, in terms of being able to connect with, with customers. Um, so those are some of the external. Uh, I also engage with, um, uh, obviously have regular meetings with whether it's with our auditors or with our bankers, these end up being part of the regular framework of external. And then internally, um, it's the what you would expect. I have a, a strong operational model with my team, which is centered around a weekly staff meeting and then one-on-ones with my direct reports, most of them every other week, um, just because of, of timing. And then our CEO staff meeting is another regular weekly feature. Um, but then a fair number of, of, depending again on the season, like right now, we're coming to the you know, end of the fiscal year for us was January 31st. This month is very busy with all the meetings associated with kind of making sure that we're finalizing our numbers, preparation for earnings. That's what you would see in a week right now. Um, as we move into different phases of the year, there's often a lot of meetings around planning. Um, I also have meetings around our technology roadmap. Um, external technology roadmap and then our internal technology roadmap. So there's a lot of variety. Like it's a, I, I think that's the thing that I, I love about this role is that I, I have a lot of external and internal um, facing connection. Do you have any special uh, habits or hacks where you keep X percent of your time unscheduled or uh, you, you, you have a zero e email inbox strategy I, I, or what's, what are some yeah. of the things that you... Yeah, I, I, don't, I don't try the zero inbox because I have, I have failed miserably at attempts at that in the past. Um, I have tried the time blocking thing and I always find that that's something I have to keep on revisiting because I've tried to sort of set aside a couple of hours every day for work that is you know, non-interrupt work where I can spend time on things that are, need me to think, review materials. Our company does a lot of effort around creating written narratives for um, proposals or plans or documents. So often that needs, you know, concentrated time to read. You can't read in five-minute snippets. Um, but the one thing I still do is um, I, I sort of did the Stephen Covey, uh, you know, seven habits of highly effective people. Um, I did a course on this like years ago. Um, 
And I sort of adopted his quadrants around what's urgent and what's important. So I have a daily practice of kind of looking at kind of what do I have to put into what um, quadrant? What's the stuff that's, that's you know, um, important but not urgent? So that's typically around planning activities. That's the stuff I have to put in, make sure I'm putting into my two hour block. And then what's the stuff that is urgent and important, making sure that I'm giving that the right attention and then doing a better job of delegating the other stuff um, and ignoring the stuff that really is not urgent and not important. So that's still a tool that I've been using now for probably more than 10 years. And do you literally write it down every day? I do, I, I'm a notebook person. I write it down. I don't, I don't do four quadrants, I do four columns. So that's my improvement. So I have them across a, you know, two on, two on each page. That's my approach. So you talked about meeting with your team weekly, meeting with your CEO, with the, the senior leaders weekly. Yeah. Uh, how often do you meet with the someone on the board outside of the board meetings, uh, either the chair of the audit committee or others? Yes, I, I have a, um, a monthly catch up with our audit chair. Um, and that's really, it's a combination of things. One, um, she provides Elena Gomez, who's um, CFO of Toast now, previously of Zendesk. She's been on our board um, since just before the IPO. And she is also a mentor for me. Um, so we have a, have a catch up, um, normally a fairly brief catch up. And then obviously as we get into board prep, that's a, um, a catch up. But we have a very accessible board who, like if we're looking at some, you know, new strategy plan or whatever, um, they're very open to me reaching out to them and, you know, they make themselves available for an hour to be able to get some input, so, which I find super helpful. We've got two questions at the end that are my favorite questions to end with. Uh, the first one is, if you think back on your career, you talked about having advisors personally and, and a number of them. What's the best advice uh, anyone's ever given you? Yeah, so, you know, I, I often, um, it's hard to think about like the single best piece of advice, but I often go to something that happened to me early in my, my career, which was an experience that I had as a software engineer where a manager there who had, I had at the time encouraged me to make my contribution, like don't feel that I need to hold back before I make a contribution. And it came out of, I'd had a, we were in a design session and I'd made this comment to him saying, um, you know, my two cents worth on this design because I was a new engineer is, is this. And after the meeting, he pulled me aside and he said to me, you know, Howard, I don't ever want to hear you use the term my two cents worth. And I was like, well, why? Like, what have I done wrong? And he said, well, that undermines your contribution and you have a contribution to make here from day one, like don't hold back. And so I think that's always stuck with me. Like you don't have to feel that you have to stay at a company like three months or six months before you have a say, have a say, like you, and do it respectfully, obviously, but you have a right to an opinion and a view and that can change people's perspectives. It can help them, them think again. So that, that's my one thing. That's a very interesting perspective. And I, I know people who've given the opposite advice and uh, maybe it's, it's just part of uh, judgment of yeah. you want to, if you do contribute, you want to make sure it's a, a valuable contrib contribution. Uh, and uh, somebody gave me the advice that it's not only the number of suggestions you have, it's the percentage of high quality uh, suggestions. So if, if, you, if you give 20 suggestions, two of which are good, you don't necessarily get the credit for the two, you, you, people perceive you as only 10% of them are good and 90% of them are not so good. So you have to think about both the number of yeah. good ideas yeah. and the percentage of good ideas. 
Yeah. I, I think though in tech, haven't you noticed, Jeff, though, that I think maybe there's more openness in tech to people coming with different ideas. So maybe that's my universe. I look at it through that lens in terms of, yeah, people are open to the ideas as long as you state them respectfully. Well, they're they're open to them. The question is, do you have a filter? You just say everything you think. Sure, absolutely. Do you edit them is the question. And I know I personally, early in my career, didn't have a very good editing function. So I've, got, I've gotten better <laughs> at that. So last question, if you were going to write a CFO playbook, uh, for a CFO to do something tomorrow morning to help their company or or their personal life, what would what advice would you give them in that playbook? Um, I, I would say don't feel obliged to stay in your lane, right? So I, I think I've had the benefit of have kind of taking this very circuitous path to being a CFO. I haven't stayed in one lane my whole career, and I think that you know if your goal is to be a CFO or you write, you know, make sure you understand the business. Your, your role isn't about finance, your role is about the business. So make sure that you're setting aside time, whether it's through the job shadowing that I spoke about earlier or doing your own research, but get to know the business and think about making decisions for the business, not for finance. And that, that is what I would, you know, I would, would suggest. Very wise words, Howard. It's a pleasure seeing you today and, and sharing your great ideas with our audience. Uh, Laura, thank you very much, back to you. Yeah, thank, thank you, you so much, uh, Jeff and Howard. Uh, this has been a great session. Thanks, everyone, for joining. We hope you'll join us next month as well. Thanks, all. Have a great Take rest care. of your day. Great. Bye.